Hi, everyone, and welcome to the American Ambulance EMS podcast. I'm Dr. Danielle Campaign, American Ambulance's medical director. I'm here with our fantastic co-hosts, Dr. Patil Armenian and Dr. Sajin Bhakta. Hi. Hi, everyone. Today, we're going to be talking about hemophilia and anticoagulants. Who serves a million people in the valley? We do. The brave men and women of the double A are the best at what they do in EMS today. The finest place in the world to be is right here as a part of American's family. Help is on the way, got a unit and route. No matter the problem, when in doubt, we send them out. Sure as the sunrise, sure as I bust this rhyme, 10 minutes or less. Every call, every time, this is my career path, this is what I do. The double A's, red, white, and blue. Get your call on. Here comes American. Get your lights on. Here comes American. Get your gurney on. Here comes American. Get your gloves on. Here comes American. Get your save on. All right, Patil, our toxicologist and emergency medicine physician, why don't you kick us off with the introduction and epidemiology. Tell us about hemophilia and anticoagulants. Well, I didn't know much about hemophilia until Danielle and I were actually residents together, and we had a patient that would come in every so often because of bleeding complications from hemophilia. And this patient would occasionally come in with bleeding um, in a joint space or somewhere else, and usually not from any major trauma at all, would have just bumped their arm against a wall or something minor, and then just come in with these huge bleeding hematomas. What was really interesting was that a lot of times um, they would come in with their own supply of the antidote, which is factor eight in the case of hemophilia A, which we're going to be talking about in detail during this episode. And then we would administer it because a lot of hospitals don't even stock these rare antidotes. Um, And so I always thought that was interesting. And the way uh, they would obtain the antidote was through a local network of many people with hemophilia who um, would have a vial or two from their hematologist. They would have already gotten it from their doctor and would just have it on hand in case one of them ended up at a hospital that didn't have the antidote. That always just stuck out in my mind. Now, a lot of us are very familiar with emergency care for external bleeding. You put pressure on it, right? Or dress the wound. What if pressure isn't enough? Or the bleeding is due to a medication? Or what if someone has a minor trauma and appears fine, but they're on a blood thinner? Today, we're going to discuss the diseases and medications that cause bleeding complications in patients. Specifically, we're going to talk about hemophilia and anticoagulants. Hemophilia is a sex-linked recessive genetic disorder affecting 1 in 5,000 male births in which blood can't clot properly. So it's very rare. More common and what we will call acquired bleeding disorders are from anticoagulant medications. For many years, heparin and warfarin were the main blood thinner medications on the market. However, in the last decade, NOACs, or novel oral anticoagulants, have entered the market, resulting in a rise in anticoagulant use. Estimates range from 6 to 8 million Americans on anticoagulants in the U.S. today. Rough estimates put it at 4 million on anticoagulants for atrial fibrillation, and about 2 million for venous thromboembolism, such as PE or DVT, and another 500,000 or so for mechanical heart valves. We're talking about this concept today because these are often patients that appear well, but unless you know their history, you wouldn't know how severe their bleeding may become. For example, if a patient on blood thinners hits their head, 
They may have minimal signs of external trauma, but may have a developing intracranial bleed. Now we're going to have to get into talking about blood and how blood clots. I didn't want to do this, but we have to talk about the clotting cascade. And hopefully after this, uh, everyone will understand it a little bit better. But the way I process things is I always think about the end game. So the end game is fibrin. And fibrin is basically like that meshy network that's going to form a blood clot. And so in the blood clotting cascade, we have multiple different proteins, a long cascade of different proteins that get activated. These have all have Roman numeral numbers. So I'm sure you've seen this clotting cascade in a picture at some point, but they're numbered from Roman numeral 1 to 12. So that means that uh, not only are there 12 factors involved in the clotting of blood, but each one actually has to get activated. So technically, there's far more proteins than 12. I guess it's 24 in a sense. But anyway, the end game is fibrin. And how do we get to fibrin? Well, fibrinogen is converted to fibrin by thrombin. So every single one of these proteins goes from the dormant to the activated form. So for example, going from factor 1 to factor 1a. So factor 9A and factor 8A both activate factor 10. And so these are the two factors missing in hemophilia. So in hemophilia type A, they're missing factor 8. And in hemophilia type B, they're missing factor 9. But without one of those, you can't activate factor 10. And so the clotting cascade will not keep going. It'll just stop. And so then you can't clot blood. Now, um, where do all of our anticoagulant medications work? Well, warfarin, otherwise known as Coumadin, acts at a lot of different points of the clotting cascade. It actually inhibits four factors, factor 7, 9, 10, and prothrombin, which is factor 2. And that is kind of a big deal. That's a lot of different factors that are being inhibited. Heparins, um, and I say plural because there's regular heparin and low molecular weight heparin, which is your Lovenox, basically. They inhibit thrombin, which is factor 2A, and factor 10A. So they're inhibiting two factors in here. And then you have medications called direct thrombin inhibitors. These are some of our novel oral anticoagulants. The names that you may have heard are dabigatran and argatraban. Um, dabigatran is also known as Pradaxa. That's the brand name. And these um, are direct thrombin inhibitors, which means they directly inhibit thrombin, which is factor 2A. And then there's a whole other group of NOACs, which are factor 10A inhibitors. And you guessed it, they inhibit factor 10A. And those are going to be apixaban, batrixaban, edoxaban, rivaroxaban, anything that ends in oxaban. The long story short of it is that hemophilia and all of these medications are basically just blocking at least one or missing at least one of these factors that are in this huge clotting cascade. Now, just to get into a little bit more detail um, with hemophilia, we mentioned it's a sex-linked recessive uh, genetic disorder, uh, which means that there's a mutation of the gene on one of the X chromosomes. So this is a gene that provides instructions for making um, either factor 9, factor 8, or factor 9 clotting factor proteins in the body. And um, 
a male would need one gene to manifest the disease state, whereas a, a female would need two copies of the gene. So usually you see males um, with hemophilia, and you very rarely see a female. Now, hemophiliacs may have spontaneous bleeds or bleeding with very minor trauma. And I think, you know, we think of trauma as like, oh, you, you know, bumped into a wall or you fell down. But trauma can also be, for example, getting an IM injection of a medication. So that's something to, to watch out for in a hemophiliac. Um, even with an IM injection, they can have profound bleeding in the muscle that may even lead to compartment syndrome very rarely. Now, hemophilia is graded into mild, moderate, and severe based on the amount of factor 8 or 9 in the blood. So some people just have mild hemophilia where they might not even know they have the disease until one day they have a surgical procedure or a tooth extraction, or in the case of a woman, go through childbirth that are all complicated by prolonged bleeding. Um, and of course, in the moderate and severe cases, these are the people that might end up developing um, not only bleeding with minor trauma, but spontaneous bleeding. So I think it's important to note when you have a child that is bleeding profusely and it's not stopping like normal, you know, ask the parents, do you have a bleeding disorder? Because sometimes it's undiagnosed hemophilia. This is not something that's tested for routinely in kids. It's usually in families, they know about it. But if you're adopted or there's other circumstances, like kids might not know they carry this. Let's go through the anticoagulant medications. Um, why are so many people on these medicines? By keeping the blood thin, the risk of clots are reduced. So in essence, they are used in disease states where people are either clotting their blood too much, like in venous thromboembolisms, like DVTs or pulmonary embolisms, or something which may predispose to clotting, such as atrial fibrillation or mechanical heart valves. So the end game for all these processes is that the blood clot would either form in or dislodge into the brain or lungs, thereby cutting off oxygen supply to those vital organs. So like strokes and pulmonary embolism. So those are more dangerous to have a stroke or a pulmonary embolism. So they give you these anticoagulant medications. Sajin, why don't you talk about traditional anticoagulants? So the medications we've had for quite a while now are the heparins and warfarin. So the heparins include heparin, and also low molecular weight heparin. Now, they are typically administered by injection, and some people will be on low molecular weight heparin, such as Lovenox or Inoxaparin, and these can also be given at home, but they are injections. Now, warfarin is a vitamin K antagonist, and it takes a few days for it to work because it stops a process that's quite a few steps behind the factor creation itself, but they're pretty effective. As Patil mentioned, you're blocking several different factors. These came about, and they're often used as rat poisons. Um, some rat poisons are super warfarins, which means that their effects may last for a few months if a person ingests it. I think that's super important to know if somebody did take an ingestion, intentional or not, or a kid got into it, bring the rat poison with you to the hospital, as we need to know how long that's going to act in there. Now, in the case of NOACs, which are novel oral anticoagulants, you have direct thrombin inhibitors, like we mentioned before, and factor 10A inhibitors. And just so you know some of the brand names, because I think this is what patients will mention the most, some of the direct thrombin inhibitors are ACOVA and Pradaxa. I think we see Pradaxa fairly often nowadays. And some of the brand names for factor 10A inhibitors are Eliquis, Xarelto, Sabesa, and Bevixa. Um, I think we do see Eliquis and Xarelto prescribed the most often. Now, the issue with these medications is that they make people susceptible to bleeding with minor trauma and sometimes even bleed spontaneously. 
And I think one of the main reasons why um, the NOACs were developed was because of issues with warfarin. Those issues are mainly tons of drug-drug interactions, tons of food interactions. So if someone isn't very careful, they can quickly become either supra-therapeutic, leading to increased bleeding susceptibility, or sub-therapeutic, meaning the medication isn't even working at all for them. So let's go through the assessment of these patients, right? So let's talk about if you're an EMS and you come up on a patient, no matter what their complaint is, abdominal pain, GI bleeding, trauma, but they're on these types of medicines or they have a history of hemophilia, what are we going to go through? So of course, we're always going to start with their ABCs. We're going to assess if the patient has any signs of external trauma, bleeding, bruising, swollen joints, or head trauma. And then we're going to ask all patients about past medical history, including current medications. Especially for these traumatic patients or traumatic injuries, ask the patient and or the family if there's any history of being on a blood thinner or if they have a bleeding disorder. And if you do find that they have a history of hemophilia, ask the patient what hospital they usually receive their care from and if they have factor with them. Sometimes, as Patil mentioned, patients can have vials of factor eight or factor nine that they need. And more importantly, ask them what hospital they have gotten factor from in the past and transport there if possible. And some of these patients know that I take so much factor on Tuesday, Thursdays, and Saturdays. And then if I have an injury, I give myself double the dose or a certain amount. And it changes as the kid gets older based on their weight. So a lot of times the patient is more educated on their factor than the healthcare system because they're so used to dealing with this their whole entire lives. Yeah, so definitely listen to them and let them bring their medication with them. And for patients on blood thinning medications, ask exactly what they're on and what they're on it for and when their last dose was. The reason for being on an anticoagulant will affect how fast or how completely it is reversed in the hospital setting. And then, of course, gathering that information is one thing, but transmitting this medical history and medication information to the hospital personnel is really vital for these patients. Again, you're going straight to the source as the pre-hospital provider, and you can see their medications and their medical history from family that we often don't get in the hospital. So everything you tell us is really important. Let's go through the management of these types of patients. So of course, if it's external bleeding, we're going to put direct pressure on it. One of the things you consider putting ice on the area. Um, TXA comes up, tranexamic acid. So some systems in EMS carry TXA. I know here locally, um, Merced County carries TXA in their rigs, and so does um, Skylife, our air ambulance system. However, in SEMSA, Central California EMS Agency, we do not carry TXA at this time. Um, They're using this for severe bleeding in the trauma setting. Um, It's also been used as an adjunct in the hospital setting to stop bleeding in hemophiliacs, sometimes in severe GI bleeding, and other instances. Now, just remember, um, for hemophilia, Minor trauma in a person with hemophilia can result in major complications if a blood vessel has broken and bleeding continues into a joint space or an internal organ. And like we mentioned before, ask patient or family if they have a factor with them. Um, Some people may have a vial. And if they don't, um, consider transporting to the nearest hospital that does have it. Not every hospital will have it. Um, usually, if the patient themselves doesn't don't know, it's probably going to be your largest, nearest trauma center or tertiary medical center. Again, respect what these patients have to say. They're usually very well-versed in their disease process. Now, 
Once they do get to the hospital for a hemophilia patient, we're basically administering factor eight or nine. Um, and then in the case of anticoagulant medications, uh, we're considering reversing that medication. And reversal is different for each type of anticoagulant. Now, in the realm of the traditional anticoagulants, um, heparins are all reversed with varying doses of something called protamine. The good news with regular heparin is that it's very short-acting, so usually we don't even need it. I don't think I've ever had a case where I had to give it because it actually wears off so fast. Now, with low molecular weight heparin, such as Lovenox injections, Lovenox is also reversed with protamine, but with slightly higher dosing than regular heparin. I think the great point is heparin is an infusion, usually an IV infusion, is turned on and turned off. So if you're doing a transfer, you know, critical care transfer somewhere, they'll be on heparin. If they have a bleeding complication, it's very easy to turn off. And that's one of the reasons why physicians start them on that if, they, if they're worried about a bleeding problem. Now, warfarin has been around for a really long time, so we have a lot of different ways to actually reverse uh, warfarin toxicity or bleeding from warfarin. And so FFP, which is fresh frozen plasma, is one option, uh, but it is a lot of volume and it does take time. Uh, much faster is actually something called prothrombin complex concentrate, or PCC, as it's referred to sometimes. And this is either a combination of three or four factors. And every hospital stocks a different one. There is a product called Kcentra that's four factors. I know at our hospital that we all work at, we stock a three-factor PCC, but it will work relatively quickly. Now, a very effective but slow antidote is vitamin K. So you can give vitamin K, um, but it will take 12 hours or more for it to really start working. But that's kind of, as a toxicologist, that's one of the things I like about warfarin. At least I can reverse it and then stop the bleeding because of that. Toxicologists kind of hate the NOAX because these traditional antidotes don't work. And so although they're much easier for patients to use, don't have all the medication and dietary restrictions and interactions that warfarin does, well, there are no good antidotes in the NOAC world except for something called Praxbind, which is the antidote for, you guessed it, Pradaxa, which is Dabigatran. The, the generic name for Praxbind is very hard to say. I'll try. It's Idarucizumab. And this is a monoclonal antibody antidote, and it only reverses this one specific medication. It doesn't work on any other NOAX. But guess what, guys? When you have a very specific antidote uh, that's a monoclonal antibody, that means it's super expensive. So just to put it in perspective, we carry only two vials of this in our whole hospital, which is a large tertiary academic trauma center. We got two vials. Each vial costs about $35,000. So um, whereas just giving um, FFP or PCC for a warfarin um, toxicity reversal is maybe like a couple hundred bucks or something. It's just uh, the price differential is vast. So, um, so we use it for very critical patients who really need it, and we definitely know they are on Pradexa, for example. Another antidote is available on the market um, called Andexa, which is a recombinant uh, factor 10A. So this is being marketed for the reversal of our uh, factor 10A inhibitors, Apixaban and Rivaroxaban, which is basically Eliquis and Xarelto. 
but the data so far is minimal and doesn't justify the high cost of the product. So this also is in the multi-thousands of dollars range for one dose. And there's actually no no randomized controlled trials done yet, all open-label single-arm trials, which means, I hate to say it, but the data is not there yet. So even though a lot of places are pushing to add this to their hospital formularies, we don't think that the data so far proves that it actually works. So in these cases, so in any NOAC where you're like, they're bleeding, we don't know what to do, we're probably going to recommend giving just the, the factors to them as well. So we would still give the PCCs. And just so you guys know, some of them are removed by dialysis. But, you know, putting in a big dialysis catheter in someone who's already bleeding can be pretty problematic. So it's a scary thing to think about. And in the hospital setting, um, we really take into account what kind of bleeding it is. You know, severe bleeding is it in their brain, and then we got to do all these things really fast. Or is it kind of minor bleeding? Maybe it's a GI bleed, but it's very trickle. It's not a big deal. Their hemoglobin hasn't dropped much. So a lot of things go into play when we try to decide how quickly to give the antidote. Let's go through the protocols. So there are no exact protocols for these bleeding complications in our SEMSA region. Um, bleeding is mentioned in several different protocols, but there aren't really any specific regimens or things for you to do to battle these types of complications. So basically, for any bleeding, we're going to apply pressure, we're going to apply a tourniquet if necessary. And really, our biggest thing is going to be choosing the correct location to transport these patients to. Again, if it's a major traumatic injury, hopefully you're going to be transporting them to the highest level trauma center, the nearest trauma center. Um, if you feel that there's a relatively low mechanism, but you're concerned that they may need a factor, such as in a hemophiliac patient, then we should try to transport these patients to the nearest hospital that you know has the reversal agent or the factors 8 or factor 9 on formulary so these patients can get them. And again, if you are in a region that carries TXA, that is another medication that we can use for major bleeding in, in trauma. Let's go through the summary take-home points. Um, we've discussed a lot of big words and big topics with this anticoagulants and medication use, but it's a really great topic for us to know about. So, Sajin, what do you want us to remember? For me, it's always err on the side of transport. Don't be fooled by what looks like minor trauma in a patient who can't clot their blood. These patients, again, can have minimal external signs, but can have a serious internal injury. Patio. Um, always get the medical history and medication list from patients if possible. And if they're on a blood thinner or have a bleeding problem such as hemophilia, then please transmit that information to the base hospital and receiving hospital personnel. So my summary take-home point is um, always, of course, you're going to treat all the bleeding the same regardless of what's in their system. So you're going to apply pressure to external bleeding sites and expanding hematomas as you normally would. But really, of course, be extra cautious when you know they're on a blood thinner, whether it's their natural blood thinner of hemophilia or their external blood thinner of a NOAC or a warfarin-type medication. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thanks. If you guys like the American Ambulance EMS podcast and you feel like this has been useful for you, please give us a five-star review on the iTunes store so that we can move up in the ratings so that uh, other uh, pre-hospital professionals can listen to us as well. Um, and we're also taking any solicitations for ideas or, or topics that you want covered, and you can email us anytime at 
podcast at AmericanAmbulance.com. Once again, that's podcast at AmericanAmbulance.com. Thanks. Thank you for joining us on the American Ambulance EMS podcast, produced by American Ambulance in Fresno, California. The views of the guests and the hosts of this show are their own and don't necessarily reflect the views of American Ambulance or UCSF Fresno. The theme song for the show is written and performed by Roshan Roach. The beats were created by Young Pear and Brett Schoenwald. And I'm John Mark Bergen, American Ambulance's media producer, saying thanks for joining us. Have a great shift and stay safe out there.